Hi, I'm Devin Scott. I'm Will Ross. We're friends and independent filmmakers. I'm a cinematographer and colorist, and Will's an editor and sound designer. And uh, I tell you, today, this, this, it's a wacky one, Will. It's, it's a, a one. wacky one. I bet you didn't come into a formal analysis film podcast to talk about movies on the Hallmark and Lifetime channels. No, no one did. This, this is the fact. No one will expect this. Uh, We're going to be talking with Gloria Mercer about them. She's a director and an editor. She has not directed Hallmark or Lifetime movies, but she has edited on them. Yeah. So we're going to be talking about those romantic comedies a little bit. Welcome to Film Formally. So I read three articles about Hallmark movies this week. Um, I'm going to tell you the titles because they're very interesting. So first title, New Yorker, how Hallmark took over cable television. Uh Second title, Glamour. There's a reason you see the same women in all these Hallmark movies. (laughs) Third title, Salon. Hallmark movies are fascist propaganda. (laughs) 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 I'm sorry for interrupting, but I wanted to get that punchline in. It sounds familiar. I might have read that years ago, but I mean, I wonder how Lori Laughlin feels about all this. Or Laugh. From jail? Yeah. She still has feelings in jail. I just I just found the salon article at, at just for kicks. I control F Third Reich and got a result. <laughs> Getting this show on the road here. We're here today to talk about how movies are made, but not the movies you might think about when you think of the word movies. We're talking about Hallmark movies. We're talking about Lifetime movies. These are movies that are made for TV and not just that, but made for these specific channels. If you haven't heard of them, they're known for their very sentimental, frequently romantic comedy settings. They're frequently associated with the Christmas season where they have long marathons of original made for TV movies. And they have a particular unique stamp, and we're going to talk about that stamp, and we're going to talk about how they get made with someone who has worked on Hallmark movies and who has made a fair share of her own independent films, Gloria Mercer. Hi, Gloria. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. So, Gloria, just to get started, you have worked mostly in post-production in the, on the editing end of these films, but when does what what starts the whole process? How does the cycle of a Hallmark movie begin? Does someone have an idea for a movie that they pitch? Is someone just filling a quota or a time slot and thinking, okay, we got to brainstorm something that's different from the other things we have? What what's the germ of it? Uh, that's a really interesting question, actually, and I can only tell you uh, what pertains to the limited experiences I've had on the ones that I've worked on. But I know for a lot of Hallmark movies, it can often be just like some star, someone maybe who came from like a soap opera or something like that is like, I want to make something, somebody write it. And maybe they have like a screenwriter that they know. Like, for example, I worked on a series that was a daytime soap star had a screenwriting person that had worked on it was days of our lives and they wrote a mystery movie series and i don't really think that there was 
anybody pitched like, oh, we're going to make a mystery movie series about this. It was just like stars, like I can be the star of this. I'll executive produce it. And then this person's going to write it and we'll just go from there. And I think actually what they had for that, the prompt was podcasts. So then they just like went from there. So I, I think it's kind of just like they... It may seem crazy because we may not know some of the stars, like, as huge Hollywood stars, but they're often, like, kind of well-known, often women who, like, have, like, a loyal fan base from soaps or TV or something, and then they are like, okay, I'm going to be this movie, and then the details, I think, kind of come from there. That's, like, my understanding of it. Okay, so often you've got a start, and they've kind of got a team, or at least some people who they like working with, and they're like, okay, we're going to make a movie, we've got the venue for it, let's come up yeah. with something, and that's how it's Yeah, yeah, like, you know, in this case, it might have just been like, oh, let's make a mystery, like, about, like, a podcaster who's, like, doing true crime, and then it'll star me, and then, like, that's kind of, like, worked out the details from there, and, you know, there's going to be, like, a romantic subplot, and that's kind of the thing. So, that yeah, I, I think it it's kind of just, like, using this model of we have these sort of, like, mid-30s women who are, like, come from maybe soaps or whatever, and then they build around that, I guess. But sometimes it happens in different ways, but that's kind of the big thing. One of the most personally interesting aspects of the whole Hallmark movie movement is the way that especially in vancouver where we all live um, yeah it's it's essentially a cottage industry here yeah and it's like a parallel like vancouver is dominated by hollywood of course but hallmark movies are kind of a parallel like universe yeah. of lower budget but still higher budget than most indie films yeah um, with well, their own kind of traditions and i mean i guess some indie films yeah um, at least depends. the indie films that i work on I think it's like three to five million for a Hallmark movie or something like that. By indie films, I'm talking about like the telefilm yeah, like, yeah. recipients, like yes, you know the yes. 250 grand to a million yeah. films. Yeah. What has yeah. been fashionably called micro budget? Yes, because mm. I know there's. A, I don't know. I've talked about the Blumhouse model with uh, Dear Aiden, and so it's like kind of it's weird because there's like weird parallels. I, this is a tangent, but it's like. Do you know the company Blumhouse? They make like yeah. horror. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. They, they, they've made some really big films like they made Get Out and um, Us, but they also have made tons of like lesser known stuff. And it's kind of like this weird parallel. I feel like them and Hallmark are like making, they're like big studios making low budget films. But yeah, Vancouver is like, I think we all know somebody who's worked on at least two Hallmark movies, <laughs> if not more. Even if you don't work in film, you know somebody who's worked yeah. on Hallmark oh. movies. Oh, yes. So we all kind of made a pact, a blood pact, to watch <laughs> two films. One is called um, The Flight Before Christmas. The other one is called Bottled with Love. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which is funny because it makes me think of, like, being bottled. Like, maybe that's a dark place to go. Like, with the, like hit with the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> you mean attacked with bottles? <laughs> you, that's, how, that's how you call when someone gets hit with a bottle. <laughs> I just got bottled. You ever see Rumble in the Bronx got. and Jackie Jackson <laughs> got bottled? Matt. That's what you call it? Who is you? I've never that's heard what we called it. Well, that's what we called it so, growing up. Uh, but yeah, we those were the two. <laughs> yes. Two movies. I just wanted to, to do a little disclaimer here. Only one of the two films we saw was a Hallmark film. Technically. Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, it's funny because like a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people use the sort of Hallmark and Lifetime interchangeably and i'm like there are notable differences that i find really interesting they have really similar target demos but also 
there's a difference which we can talk about later if you want to oh, i'd love to because I, I i we talk about definitions a lot here and we had this kind of discussion with this previous episode which will be the cinemascope episode mm-hmm. where we talked about how cinemascope had started its life as a brand anamorphic yeah. lens and it yeah. now just refers to an aspect ratio it's like kleenex yeah <laughs> you know i, I think hallmark movies are kind of like that exactly hallmark movies are kind of like that too right where they refer to not only a brand of films but a whole school of thought relating to film production for these two films because i kind of we sort of picked them together but i was trying to find two rom-coms because i feel like that's the easiest way to examine like the sort of tv movie structure because they do have other stuff like they have mysteries or whatever but the rom-com is like i feel like that's their big thing and it's also like every film they make has a romantic element built in there but like the biggest easy breakdown of like what a hallmark movie often does and what a lifetime movie often does is it's like mid-30s career-oriented woman has to do some sort of a thing that often like brings her back to her hometown or a small town also there's this undercurrent of like she needs to slow down and then in that journey meets a man and then they have a meet cute and they don't like each other right away. And then throughout the film and a series of very low conflict events, they learn that they are in love and then they kiss at the end. And that is the movie. And it is very, very reliable. And it's funny because actually the Lifetime movie we watched, the woman is almost the one who's like telling the dude that he needs to chill out. I don't know. Anyway, but like that's it's a minor reliable. role reversal there. I found it's a little bit, um, yeah, groundbreaking, but there, there's, that's like often the kind of story. And then it's like some version of that. And then they're also really reliable and the, because they're made for TV, they're almost always around 84 minutes. They're about, they minutes, like deliver, yeah. they deliver it pretty much exactly 84 minutes they, like you can go over and under depending but like it that's often what the network has for and it's like oh this is so granular but you have your one act and it is like 22 between like 19 and like 23 minutes and then you're like second act and your third act are going to be around 10 minutes and then i have not i can't remember the math exactly but it like goes down basically so your, your last acts are like around six minutes and they have act minimums and it's always the same which is interesting because that's just the format of tv right like it's like yeah oh very much so like one thing i liked in both was after the first act there's a fade to commercial and after the fade out from commercial a character will sum up everything that has happened in the plot so far in one yeah (laughs) yes because there's often quite a lot of ads too. <laughs> it's not just. It certainly hurts it as a as a unified viewing experience without commercials. But with commercials, I mean, it would make a lot of sense. That's true. Yeah, we should have watched it with commercials. Actually, I thought. Yeah, it was I, 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 we were I kind of felt like I was missing out in the key part of the experience. Just turn on YouTube. Just fading to nothing. Yeah. <laughs> what I find really interesting, and Aiden and I talked about this actually, because he has spoken to people who've written for either Hallmark movies or like TV movies or just TV like soaps, just having those act outs be really like, they always want to hook you, but then like, well, Hallmark is like a funny, well, like they're in a tough position because there's not often a lot of stuff that happens in the movie and they're low budget. So they can't really do a whole (laughs) lot. So they can have these like, Oh, is she going to fall off the cliff? It's like, It'll just be like, will we go to the market? And then you'll like act out, act back in. And then it's just like, we will go to the market or whatever. And then, but okay. So the other thing is like, like any feature, like on on set, 
every day they're sort of measuring how much movie they've shot and they're kind of like calculating how much more do we need to shoot? Because often it is literally like these movies are shot in 14 days, sometimes 13. Like it used to be 18. It got cut down to 15. Now you'll see 13 or 14 day shoots, which is just bananas. Like it's just crazy to me. But so every day on set, they're kind of measuring like, you know, do we need the scene? Are we behind? Do we have to cut something? And they often will. Which means you have these acts where, you know, if it was a six minute act, now it's like a four minute act if you had to cut a couple scenes. And so then your act outs just get like slid around at random because like that's just kind of what Post has to do to like make their acts make sense. And I just find that really interesting that it's like you have the best laid plans that are already kind of hindered by the fact that they don't have a ton of money. So you have these act outs that are supposed to be dramatic and then you get to post and it's like, what can, I don't know. It's, you have to like slide things around. This is my favorite act break uh, of, of the two movies is it's after act one, a bottled with love. And this picks up mid scene, but it's 100% an intentional act break. And I think it's genius. It, the scene fades in and the protagonist is in the kitchen with her aunt and she's looking at her laptop and she says the line, a complete stranger found my message in a bottle and just emailed me. That's like a really good... Uh, An absolutely perfect 100% A-plus <laughs> summation. Well, I wrote down some notes about stuff to talk about that I found interesting. Um, oh, awesome. First one, cell phones slash phone calls as exposition. And just like in general, I feel... Okay, so this is just like a big thing about like Hallmark movies and Lifetime. But I guess because of the format of just like often you have people in two different places, like someone getting stranded in a place is like such a big like TV movie thing, just like, oh, I'm in Connecticut and I can't come back to where you, well, what do I do? So it's like you, I don't know, I feel like um, built in is like, you're just going to see a lot of shit on cell phones. Sometimes people say that cell phones killed or or did huge damage to like the suspense thriller genre because yeah. someone can always oh. just cell phone their way out of the situation. But I guess they're yeah. a huge boon to the TV romantic comedy movie. It's true. Um, yeah, because... Could you make the argument that it's more true to life because so many films kind of elide our cell phone use? Well, it's also like if you need to have no cell phones to create conflict, then that is perfect for the TV movie, which often avoids conflict. (laughs) (laughs) So the like correlation of like phones to conflict is like a, you know, you get what I'm saying. Often you see like with, I don't know, it's like a filmmaking struggle that like if you are going to have exposition on a phone like or just phone calls or whatever like you you find a way to like do it in an interesting way and kind of can be difficult and I feel like they just it's a genuine problem with cinema I think mm-hmm. and I, I don't totally. I, I, I think I can't think of a single film that's actually where I, I've seen it and I felt like this solves it this yeah. is like the template um, yeah. I know like House of Cards the TV show that has been since been canceled in multiple ways. Um, uh, uh, like yeah. that was the first time I ever saw a little like pop-up video thing yeah. uh, on a cell phone. But even that has, and I was like, maybe, but no, no. Yeah, Have you that's... seen personal shopper? Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of cell phone on that, that I feel I didn't like it. I don't know. Well, you know, my, here's my really niche beef with the personal shopper. Niche beef. <laughs> Yeah, that Kristen Stewart, a millennial, Googles things by typing right. word plus word plus word plus what? word instead of using spaces. And I'm like, the guy who directed this is over 50, and I that he is. happens? Yeah, he, she does. <laughs> and 
that movie? Wow. I maybe it's a weird that. thing she like picked up in like sixth grade infotech and just never dropped. Could it just be a European thing? They just don't have spaces over there. I don't. Hey, hey Anya, is that a European thing? <laughs> If you look at their keyboard, the space bar has a plus symbol on it. It's, wait, I have a European here. Um, the um, we have in Europe. Do they Google things really? by doing word and then plus word plus? So, no, they do not. <laughs> That's our European cinema question. I always say that like the most boring thing in movies is like an image of a computer screen or an image of like a cell phone, and no matter yeah. what, I can feel my brain waves like flattening when that image mm-hmm. comes on screen a drama beat often is you know mainstream cinema particularly superhero films particularly superhero films made by a certain company um tend to shoot in a very prescriptive um cookie cutter way and hallmark films are an almost distillation of that to me mm-hmm. where because of their extremely compressed shooting schedules they're forced to essentially shoot for brutally efficient reasons yeah um i'm i'm assuming they have multiple cameras going at once oh for sure i I know they do and there's a very specific way scenes are shot and there's a very specific way especially they deal with things like wide establishing shots of landscapes and i'd like to hear (laughs) your kind of thoughts on the process of, of those two things Yeah, well, it's funny because if you're talking about wide establishers, they don't shoot them. They just use stock, which is fine. Like, I mean, you know, lots of movies have hidden stocks in them that we don't think about. Can you explain what using stock is? Sure. Okay. So stock footage is like, uh, well, there's, it's a whole world. But uh, basically, there's companies like Shutterstock or Pond5 or there's a bazillion of them where you can just purchase any sort of footage that people have shot and just thrown on the internet for a certain amount of money because they have crazy compressed shooting schedules and often they will be shooting somewhere like Vancouver but setting it in Boston or whatever then they they use they rely heavily on these wide establishers of the location and if you watch a film basically anytime you're outside and it's like uh, you know wider than a body shot of the actors like it is quite likely purchased off the internet which is funny because actually what you commented Devin, that um flight before christmas is like quite liberal with the stock like i there i wasn't oh, counting yeah. but i would say there was oh, like word, 20 yes. well because you know there's budget like i just feel like when i've worked on these tv movies they're like you can't do that because sure. we run out of money so it's like you can't just uh go crazy but i feel like they had like 20 or something when you know that's a little high in my experience yeah, and you judging. were saying it, it, it's just a lot <laughs> <laughs> no it's a lot and it's yeah and you're cutting between all sorts of crazy crap but you were saying sometimes those shots feel like they're from different movies because of the color and i was gonna say you know what you get from these stock companies is a real crapshoot and you might get something i feel like i've almost never see anything delivered like log i'm not a colorist and i'm not this is not my area of expertise but often it kind of has at least some color baked in and then you're kind of trying to correct that even if it's 4k it's still like yeah and it well it's it's a problem to go into that even more as a colorist mm-hmm. what happens is the cinema cameras used to shoot these and you have your main production cameras for a mm-hmm. shoot you know whether it be mm-hmm. sony alexa mm-hmm. whatever they shoot usually in a very high color bit depth and a very flat log image meaning that there is a lot of image data and flexibility there Mm -hmm. something like a drone even if it hasn't color graded and you're shooting in the drones version of a log will still have a lot more contrast 
and I think just as importantly, a lot less usable color detail. So matching drone footage, which is what a lot of stock footage is, and a drone is a camera that flies, uh, matching drone footage to production cinema camera footage is an uphill struggle. What I noticed is that a lot of these, a lot of the drone footage, the stock footage I saw in both these films matched like 75%, but they would have much higher saturation they would have color channels that just did not match. It's mm-hmm. very odd to cut from what feels like the look you'd expect from a dramatic film, a narrative film, to a look you'd expect, a kind of an image texture you'd expect from like a real estate video. Yeah, um, or a newsreel or something like that too. Like Yeah, or, or like a travel log. Yeah. Right? Cutting between those and trying to make the audience believe in the narrative universe, especially when you're like cutting from like, a Boston Yacht Club that's actually the Stanley Park Rowing Club yeah. <laughs> to like images of, you know, that look like Wisconsin or something. Um, it, it was fairly interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, it's funny because that's like the like assistant editor's nightmare is just when you like, they're like scour the internet for these shots. And it's actually like as much as there's a bazillion things out there, it's like very difficult to find the perfect shot obviously because they haven't shot everything and then you, like know, you so- can see that work too I, I could when i saw like some of the wide cidery shots i'm like they really really had to look for these yes and yeah. i've had producers be like actually i worked on a movie that like took place in a winery and i, I was like he was like could you find a shot of a winery with um with like an old farmhouse in the foreground <laughs> like in the summer and i was like oh no like we can't like it's not just all out there folks they just take what they can uh get and also they rely on visual effects like a surprising amount of stock they'll they'll get get like a stock of this town and then they'll just add snow to it for example like that's a big one just uh visual effects adding yeah 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 i will say actually if you ever are like if you have a 4k camera and you just live somewhere where you can get a shot of like a restaurant where nobody's face is on camera and you can like VFX at the restaurant name, then that's a money maker on the stock websites. I have one question actually. It's kind of in yeah. between these two things. Sure. There are many shots where like there's a lot of composited plates in these movies. Yeah. Are those plates usually stock or are those plates specifically designed for the films? Can we just explain composited plates or, yeah. or yeah. it real quick to So um a lot of these films feature composited plates, which mean that they shoot the actors and certain foreground elements on a set and then have a green screen behind them and then they composite them into wherever they are. Like um, the one that stuck out to me in Bottled with Love is the opening scene, again, um, set in Boston but shot in Stanley Park. And they're on the edge of the rowing club and you can see a very brushed, (laughs) composited skyline of Boston in the background. Yeah. Um, would that skyline be, for example, stock footage? Yeah, almost certainly, yeah. Like, in very rare instances, they might pay, like, it's not even, you can't even call it a second unit or, like, a splinter unit, which is, like, in filmmaking, like, a second unit is um, when you have a smaller team that doesn't involve the director or even necessarily, like, the like the normal director of photography, but it's just, like, a smaller side crew will go off and shoot stuff, so they might shoot, like, some generics of a city or whatever. But yeah, in my experience, they've never really had second units do anything full stop. I think that actually moves you up like a budget level if you have a yeah. second unit. So what they might do is is they might hire someone in another city 
to shoot stock, which they will then purchase from them, um, which is not a second mm. unit. <laughs> so yeah, can't. <laughs> that is an interesting. <laughs> I I was just gonna. This is a sidebar, but. I, I quickly, while we've been talking, I quickly like just did a fast skim through the flight before <laughs> Christmas. Oh no! And I and I counted um, just from the quick skim. I counted forty six shots that I was reasonably confident were stock. Oh my God! Wow, that's so that makes sense that I was like lowballing it because I feel like I've worked on shows where it's yeah. like we get up to fifteen and they're like, okay, let's cut it back a little bit. So like that's. That's wild. If it felt like a lot to me, I feel like that that must have yeah, that checks out. <laughs> yeah, there's well, a lot. <laughs> one thing that also really and and, and I I, th- I think um a lot of this really kind of what this added adds up to me that I think is the central reason why I find these films kind of fascinating is they are right on this line between creating a believable universe and not where I'm just constantly reminded watching these of the brittleness of the world they're constructing but yet they live up to certain production standards that are well beyond like what we're capable of at our budget Mm -hmm. levels in terms of the stuff we direct and shoot for sure Um, so there's a weird dichotomy there Yeah, people talk about david lynch uh movies resembling like melodramas or resembling soap (laughs) operas but i i feel like honestly the closest analog to david lynch movies like a straight david lynch movie is a hallmark movie yeah yeah with that uh, with the caveat that they would never ever like show any sort of like murder that's technically not true because sometimes there's murder mysteries but it's always a very sanitized version of like i worked on a show that was like it started with a murder uh, but you didn't see it. It had happened months before and they had like a skeleton. I think it's so funny because it was like a six month old murder, but there was like a fully just like clean skeleton in, in, <laughs> in the soil. <laughs> <laughs> and even that, like they were like, is this too much? So ironically, where I noticed this most is the production design. I, I, I see high school. When I see a lot of these films, like I see yeah. people walking around with these duo tangs and and, <laughs> and, and, and like so many boards in the back, in background with like um, eight and a half by 11 inkjet printed stuff that's supposed to be high end like glamour magazines and stuff. I, Very weird. Anyways. I, yeah, I think one of my favorite ways that like the production design of this film manifests itself is in the, the bedroom of the protagonist because it's just such a funny like my childhood my, like I guess I'm saying this and it's like well that's kind of what bedrooms look like and then if you actually look at it it's like none of this makes any sense but also it's true because you always have these high-powered career women and then they talk about their career and it doesn't necessarily make a lot of sense either yeah you have this weird disconnect between like because a lot of these films when you mentioned high-powered career women like they're very like they're established as being like world class the first one i watched was a world-class florist and then they have the big like world floral convention um, i think it's called a christmas arrangement this one. yeah yeah yeah. and like it looks like like a talent show that i went to when i was in middle school i worked on one where it was like a star was like the host of a uh like home reno show and then they were like we're in this like stunning mansion and then it's just like a bunch of really boring interiors of like white rooms so that's, but that's like, that's the thing. Like if you're making a movie that's about something like that's spectacular, you need to have that spectacular thing. And oh, it's yeah. hard to uh, afford that on $4 million, $3 million. And, and ironically, there's also like a commitment, it seems to like location shooting. And yeah. this is backed up 
by some reading I did where kind of architects of this whole form did that as both a, a cost-saving measure and a way to kind of keep them grounded. Oh, really? That's interesting. Yeah, and, and I really do notice it. Like um, in Bottled, there's a bit in, the, in an ice cream shop, which appears to be a some sort of real ice cream emporium. <laughs> and... And like it, it, it does weirdly feel a little more grounded than other scenes, which are completely fabricated. Yeah, uh, like, and I mean, mostly the green screen stuff. You, you brought up a thought in my brain. I don't know how I got there, but the star of a Lifetime movie or a Hallmark movie is pretty reliably like a mid thirties woman, often white, almost exclusively, and, uh, and <laughs> <laughs> like the demo, according to their website, is like women. 18 to like 60 50 i can, okay now i can't remember so, so just women yeah basically and, but i think realistically if i had to just like completely anecdotally guess the person who watches hallmark movies the most it, i would say it's like women from the age of 45 to 65 or something and i was like i was wondering do you think that these protagonists are supposed to stand in so it's like they're standing in or th- these women can connect to this film through the protagonist and also through the like inevitable mom figure who is in the film. Cause like, I think both films have the bottle with love has the aunt. And then I guess uh flight before Christmas has like sort of the mom in that she talks to on the phone. This is w- another fascinating thing about them for me where mm-hmm. I think these films do function as a real kind of reaffirmation of the lifestyles of the people who watch them in the way that mm-hmm. a lot of, I think a lot of kind of commercial entertainment does for yeah. any demographic. In this case, it, it, you know, women between the ages of 18 and 60, but um, <laughs> my slightly cynical reading of the films mm-hmm. is that they're maybe perhaps meant to reaffirm the present lifestyles of the people watching them. Right. You know, they're mostly aimed at, you know, the old term would be housewives, right? And it does reaffirm that lifestyle because a lot of them is this call to ruralness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's also just like, I mean, what was it? Fascist propaganda? But yeah, like it's, <laughs> it's like the films are always about, I say always, it's not true, but a lot of the time they are about like going to the country, going to the small town. It's aimed at people who live in small towns, like maybe the suburbs. I don't know. But just like, because it's reaffirming this, like, I have my career. I have so many good things in my life. But it turns out, like, there's something missing. And what is that thing? It's just like returning to my roots and like going back. So it's like completely. It's like the hunter-gatherer re- dynamic. <laughs> and the and the mom or the mom figure is often, I guess, maybe not so much in the two that we watch. But like the mom is often the one being like, you just got to settle down. And so it's like if you are like a sort of middle-aged woman watching this, you get to like live vicariously through the protagonist having this rom-com. And you also get to be like, and my children have left and I'm right. They should come back. So it's <laughs> I feel like the big thing, which I find funny. I also I can't articulate how I think of like how I feel about this but it's like these films are such like intense sort of supporters of gender roles or like you know like they're they're heteronormativity yeah like they're such they're so clearly champion that championing this and like championing like having a family prioritizing your family over your job 
blah, 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 like for women specifically, but they're also for Lifetime. And I don't know, I don't know the numbers, but as a network, Lifetime specifically is like one of the only networks I know that is like, I believe mostly women as their network executives. In no world do I think a TV, like a Hallmark movie or a Lifetime movie is a feminist movie. I think they're explicitly not. But I also think it's really wild that just like the film industry is so like male dominated. That One of like the biggest examples you have of a network that's like, got women working there is Lifetime making these mm. like very like gender normative films. Do you want to hear my galaxy brain take on this? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hallmark movies are kind of considered a punchline. I know that they're considered a punchline in most circles. I, you know, inhabit culturally. Um, <laughs> but, but I think that actually that status as a punchline is even the result of something of a double standard. Um, mm-hmm. Because I yeah. think that, Will, I know that you once said, and, I, and I, this really stuck with me, Sex in the City, the movies, was basically what it, it was for women-targeted demographics, what essentially like Star Trek was for male-targeted demographics. and Specifically 2009 Star Trek. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 2009 Star Trek. And by yeah. that, you meant that 2009 Star Trek was therefore more ex- more acceptably mainstream and less derided than the Sex and the City movies were, even though that they were of roughly comparable quality and, you know, intellectual value. Mm. And I think that, you know, if, if, if those two are roughly equivalent, this is like Star Trek Discovery TV series or something. You know, <laughs> yeah, this is like where, a sci-fi. Uh, this is like sci-fi channel, right? Like most of the stuff yeah, on sci-fi it's like sci-fi, sci-fi is originals. <laughs> trash. I was going to say, this is not an accessible metaphor. <laughs> you no, know, it's not at all. But this is this is not an accessible podcast. Uh, but um, It depends on whether you fit into uh, broadly defined mainstream gender roles, whether this metaphor is accessible mm-hmm. to you or not. Mm-hmm. Oh, to- well, oh, oh, totally. And, and again, this is all predicated on broadly defined gender roles that I want to emphasize I do not buy into but um, culture does um, unfortunately well this is the other thing too actually that came up I was talking to Aiden about Hallmark and and about gender roles and like I mean I also should say like I say Lifetime has like a network executive team that I think is mostly women but uh, Hallmark does not so that's worth noting even though you could argue like I'm sure like most of their films pass the uh, is it Bechdel test or Bechdel I always went Bechdel, but I have no faith. Ever since I, I found out that... Um, That's exactly... Uh, hey, Will. Will. Jif. Did you yeah. know that Frank Frank Borsage is pronounced Frank Borsagi? Borsagi. Borsagi. There we go. <laughs> it's Scorsese. Um, is it Scorsese? Oh, my God. Scorsese. I think so. Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> I should qualify, like, the, the Hallmark... Um, Network executives are not mostly women, but the lifetime are. So I think that's interesting. But also Hallmark had that controversy recently. I don't know if you guys remember this happening, but they had an ad for like a wedding service or company. uh, And it was like it featured like a lesbian couple getting married. Yeah. And then there was a backlash from the Hallmark uh, viewers who were like, what what is this ad doing here? I did not like it. And then, uh, yeah. <laughs> and then Hallmark cut it. They stopped, they pulled it and they stopped playing it. And then there was a controversy about that. And the, the people did not like that Hallmark had pulled that ad for obvious reasons, which is that it's a very homophobic decision, tra- transparently. Um, <laughs> but the point, <laughs> the point is, it wasn't the Hallmark viewership that caused that controversy. The Twitter America became aware of Hallmark for five minutes to be like, hey, don't do that. But I, I honestly think like the Hallmark demographic 
the majority of them would not have cared had it not become sort of a viral controversy. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, my point, I think that's I a big factor is so much of the Hallmark viewership is is in a more would be more apathetic towards that issue. And there mm -hmm. were enough Culturally of them. Culturally conservative. Yeah. Yeah. There were enough of them to cause some executives to panic over <laughs> their, whether their viewer base was going to be uh, um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Not yeah. dissolved. Decimated? Can't. I'm glad you can't see my stupid face right now. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Detracted? Deteriorated? Uh, um, no, you, you, what do you call it when, you, diluted. Worth the wait. <laughs> I didn't say it was I'm good. Sorry. <laughs> Can you repeat? I'm sorry. To me, it I just feel like that's that's the result of executives hearing the few people who are watching who do care about that um, mm -hmm. and care about it, unfortunately, from a homophobic perspective yeah. and kind of have this panic moment of, oh, God, if we don't do something about this, are we going to be inviting controversy and diluting our viewership and screwing up the demo? Yeah. I, they're just so prolific. They make so many movies in a year. I don't know the number, but it's like, I, I think they made like, you know, over 30 Christmas movies last year. So I feel like they're yeah. making like, I don't know, 100 movies a year, more than that. And it's, well, maybe that's way too high. I'm uh, those numbers, but it's like, but my point is just like, I, I do don't think Christmas movies are a lot of their output. Yeah, but I just don't understand like the monetization, like, I guess it's just, you know, they're trying to be so safe because they have this like rock solid demographic, even though it's like it's a whole other conversation about just like what happens when this demographic kind of ages out of the Hallmark movie. Uh, that's another thing actually is uh, that I find really fascinating about Hallmark movies specifically is they will not say the word God. Like there's no swearing to be had in a Hallmark movie, but they don't say God, which is funny because a lot of the time they seem like you would think this is like kind of religious Christian I do want to single out Bottled with Love. Mm -hmm. Of all the Hallmark slash, and again, I use Hallmark as the colloquial way to describe all these films, films I've seen, this film had easily the best lighting, uh, yeah. at least the ones that I've seen. And, yeah. and, and oftentimes lighting is like <gasps> motivated by sources in the scene. It feels like emotionally attuned to the moment. Um, yeah. Like I love, I actually think that cafe scene is like quite well lit. This mm -hmm. is a scene where they're both in a small town cafe and it's just the most like, gorgeous like americana looking you know uh looking orange filtered light but yeah um i i do think that as far as their priorities go it feels like they're putting the fewest amount of resources possible cinematographically at least to achieve a certain kind of standard of romanticized mainstream narrative cinema language yeah um, and that's really interesting because usually in an in independent film, and I mean truly independent, oftentimes you'll take actual like aesthetic risks and shortcuts. You mm -hmm. know, like I love shooting with the camera way out far outside a window. Oh, <laughs> did you hear that in Manchester by the Sea? They a lot of the reason why some of those scenes play out in like one kind of wide. That's maybe not even like it's sort of maybe almost feels like one person's coverage. Right. But like a sort of a wider shot. The reason they did that is just they were running out of time on set, which I find so crazy. <laughs> I don't know. Like, well, I mean, I don't want to say that's the only reason it's a directorial decision, but it's just like it, it, I understand what you're saying, because Hallmark movies, they are trying to shoot the scene as conventionally as they can in a short period of time, which often means what they'll do is they'll shoot on dollies because actually like 
a dolly mm-hmm. move is easier if, to to have the camera move from like oh now you're in your wide now you're in your medium now you're you're in your close up. I can also say uh, this is like an insider tip that Hallmark <laughs> their their consistent <laughs> note <laughs> it's really hot gossip. The consistent note from like uh, when we get to network cut cut when we get to network cut and it's like. Um, Hallmark is making notes on the on the cut. Um, they always want to be in the close up. Like they're they, if you want to play out a scene doing like shot reverse shot, but you're in like a medium wide or you're in like a wide, God forbid. They're like no punch in. You want to see those faces? So it, I don't really that know. I guess yeah, and I don't uh, like I don't know. I don't know if I'm smart enough to really know why. Like what motivates that aside from just like we want to. I don't know. Like we want to be in there. We want to see. Is it like a button where, you know, like a close up is the most dramatic possible note you could end on? I don't know. Like, it, well, it's not even it's like getting there. It's like basically just like set up your scene, you go into your shot, reverse shot, and then you're in close ups for the scene. Like, they vary. Yeah, which I find like, I don't know. So it's like I, I, they're prioritizing things. Like, they're prioritizing, like, this is going to sound like kind of judgmental, but like they're prioritizing like high key, like they want it. You want to see the actors like you want to see them. I don't think they would go for something that was moody and in any way like obscured faces. So there's that's a big one. And I guess it's like because it's about their cast, they're just like, we might as well be in the close up. We want to see them being in love. Like, I don't know that that's like my next thought. And then it's like when you get into um, production design, like there is it's funny because I feel like I know what it is when I see it, but I don't know how to describe it. Like I I got a production design question. Okay. The pancakes. (laughs) Um, You you compared them in, 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 okay. For for context in bottle with love, um, there's a scene where they go to the cafe and they have a stack of, I have the image right here in front of me, a stack of, you should make ten flapjacks the, the podcast um, thumbnail <laughs> i agree 10 flapjacks like each flapjack is the largest pancake i've ever it's seen in my whole thick. damn wait life. isn't this like the flight tire. before christmas no this is bald with love, um, bald with love christmas she... also has pancakes but they're about half the size because she's <laughs> she says she says she loves pancakes in her letter or in her text somewhere. And you, and, you, and you favorably compared them to the amount of pancakes Andy Daly has to eat in uh, Review with Boris McNeil. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Maybe on like the so first round. Go ahead. Is sorry. there any lesson we can pull from those pancakes into the production design ideology of these films? Because I am so confused. Well, it's actually funny because it, I don't have like a, a uh, I don't have a source on what the deal with pancakes is. Like there's no Hallmark exec who's like, put pancakes in. But, uh, <laughs> but I can say, Are I we sometimes, sure about that? I, <laughs> well, there might be, there's none that I know, but I can say that sometimes these movies, because they're so cookie cutter, like they, it does feel like all, this is going to sound really mean but like they it feels like a mad lib a little bit and that like so they'll 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 kind of have they're like you got your leads you got your thing and then just like throughout the movie i feel like you can just spot these moments where like the mad lib is like call for quirky set piece and then it's like you know so because i watched one hallmark movie where it was like i worked on it that's why i watched it but it was like (laughs) you know the best friend he's like this is your special keychain and then he's like ah never forget my special keychain and it's just like doesn't matter to the movie in any way shape or form it's just like a funny like that's the like that's the joke basically like they're rom-coms i'm doing quotations but it's like it's a rom-com and the comedy comes from these like silly little moments along the way that's just like oh this keychain looks like a shoe and like so i don't know i feel like the pancakes are that basically they're like stand in that's the the joke is 
it's pancakes. I don't know. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, this, this touches on, we, we got a, we got a question from a listener from Sarita who was asking, given that a lot of these movies have similar plot points, what is done exactly to differentiate them? As in like, what, oh. what is the decision-making process to go like, okay, we got to make sure this, uh, this is distinct from the other movies we're making in X way or Y way or Z way. I don't know that honestly they do worry about that very much. I mean, like, it's like, I feel like I've worked on a movie um, that was like about a woman going to Texas to be on a farm for, cause her company was buying the farm. And I, the editor I worked with was like, I kind of filmed that was just like this a couple years ago. So it's like, it, it, I do think, I think like what's, it, what's motivating them or like what, what goes into differentiating is like, I don't know, maybe it's sort of sales related of like just finding like how can we put this in Texas instead of like Utah so that the, the Texas people will like it. Or uh, do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. right. Zooming out to the wide picture of this, like yeah. to me, it's, I mean, gosh darn Hollywood. Staying close up. <laughs> has, <laughs> gosh darn Hollywood has such a difficult time differentiate. Like they're like, you know, the studio's five romantic comedies a year that I can't imagine how difficult it is to make like a hundred distinct works of commercial art a year and have them be remotely distinct. I I don't know how you could even do that in a perfect world. I guess. And also I'm thinking of this from kind of like a pragmatic, like, well, I don't know. They're trying to sell stuff. But like, if you're thinking of it as like somebody who is an aspiring writer who is like interested in trying to pitch to Hallmark, like, I don't know if that's really how it works in a way, like I think maybe if you can find sort of an interesting hook, like if, for example, the podcast thing, like, you know, the right. uh, true crime had, had a really big boom recently. So yeah, Hallmark... or the exact plot to shop around the corner. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the point is, if you're looking at it from like a, from like a, how can I pitch a, a film to, you know, Hallmark or lifetime that's like unique and interesting. I think it on like a, on a detailed level, like, they really are so formulaic that I think it's like you just kind of have to find like a star and maybe like a loose concept. Like, let's we're going to make a film in Hawaii. You, although I've never seen a Hallmark movie set in Hawaii, so maybe I'm completely wrong. Actually, I, it's funny because I was saying there's like a difference between Lifetime and Hallmark. And it is completely just that I think Lifetime is like 20 percent or 30 percent more like smutty like (laughs) weirdly enough that was not apparent i I got way more like she says gynecologist in like the first she does she does that would never fly in a hallmark movie (laughs) i had to shut it off right there and go and walk outside for a while (laughs) to put your kids i was so shocked yeah he's not wearing a shirt in one scene like these are the things that you would never see on the hallmark channel i don't remember continues not wearing it she has to tell him hey you're not wearing a shirt and he blithely is just like, mm. <laughs> and then she's like, let me get around you. <laughs> what? How does one shirtless men face? are like one of the most impenetrable obstacles in life? <laughs> they can't be passed. His broad shoulders. Yeah. So the, what this comes down to in a lot of ways is like the similarities between these movies are not a bug. They're they're a feature. Right. Yeah. 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 As well as like the I guess one big thing we didn't really talk a ton about is like the lack of conflict in these films. Like I guess yeah. I don't know. Which is like but it's a selling point. Like it's the same thing. Sure. It's like what we might consider to be But when I put a lack of conflict in my movie, everyone says it's boring and they hate <laughs> Me it. Me too. Yeah, it's a big but like these films are you you know show up to them and you expect like nothing bad is going to happen and then I will get one smooch at the end. And if I'm lucky maybe a, a like low point smooch as well. 
um, like a like a we can't be together goodbye kiss on the cheek. But then you get. The but you were telling us pre-recording scene. that you can't you can't overdo the smooching, right? Yeah, I know. For example, uh, I don't want to like drop too many names. I don't want to generalize, but you're an actor. You get told to kiss. You know, you bring it. There's passion, and uh, the hallmark note is is always just like do like dial it back like we did like they would reshoot kisses occasionally i mean that's like i don't know not all the time but it's just like like no tongue no tongue in the last kiss it's got to be a nice smack on the lips and then that's that's it the comfort food um nature of these movies really fascinates me Mm -hmm. because um i think um one thing one word that kept popping up in my kind of mild levels of research for this um was the word apolitical yeah In, in hallmark films they want them to be apolitical you know but, you know, I think this gets to the impossibility of apolitical art, oh. where by being apolitical, they are, very, I think, very highly political. They're positing a certain type of small C conservatism. That's a big part of it, of the brand is family values. And like, it's just not, it's like a very specific type of family, you know? I don't know. It's not good. But yeah, uh, yeah like. So often what we think of as quote unquote apolitical is just an unquestioned presentation of the status quo yeah and that's what is seen as apolitical also i will say like i've worked on hallmark movies actually I, well, the one i'm thinking of specifically is a lifetime movie but i'll pitch it to you real quick it's about um a country star who grew up in tennessee moves to la to because she come becomes a big famous star um becomes she's successful and then like mid thirties, she's like, uh, starting to become a has been. So she's like, I'm going to go home for Christmas. Stop by just brief before I go on to New York to do a show. She gets stranded there. And then the whole movie. So like she's stranded in Tennessee with her mom who loves her and it's very snowy. And the whole movie is basically like people making her feel bad about her success. Like just through like nagging and like passive aggressive, like, Oh, you're a big time star now. You don't want to spend time with us folks. And she's like, no, that's not it. I'm just busy all the time. And then like this whole movie is just like her apologizing over and over again for like being a very successful musician who lives in LA. And then like the end result is like, she decides to stay home and like, She's like, I can work from Tennessee. And then like, obviously she falls in love with the dude there. Um, but she's like, you know, we can, we can have my, my, I'll tour once a year and stay here the rest of the year and like compromise this way. But it's just like, it's just like a gauntlet of like a woman apologizing for her success in a way that's so, it's like, it's so transparently just saying like women should prioritize their husband and their family over their success. And uh, your mom is always right. And I don't know. It's just it, that. That's like the big family values thing there. The other side thing I want to quickly mention about uh, uh, these movies, specifically these two movies, is my favorite thing in either of them, 100%, no questions asked, slam dunk, grand slam, is when they're having the meeting with the guy who made the coffee and oh. they, and he like sells it and the guy's like totally <laughs> on board. And then the guy makes an ugly sweater joke about two sweaters that he and his wife are wearing in a photo that honestly seemed like perfectly nice, cute little sweaters. And he's like, ah, it's always nice to have an ugly sweater party, right? The guy the guy just like gives him a death stare and then says, this meeting is over. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like they need to have the conflict to be something that is really not bad. Like if something worse happens. Yeah, you have be... to like the guy. You can't go, ooh, this guy went too far. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have a disclaimer I want to make, and that's that, like, I know that, like, you know, like, we're, we're talking about these in a very fun way, but at the same time, like, I do want to emphasize that, like, these are films that I do respect and that 
I think that they're made for a very specific demographic. They're not for me. Mm-hmm. Well, um, they are for and there's me. a lot of really <laughs> talented professionals making a living working on them. And they're a vital part of like the local economy. Well, so, this, like, I do this think- is the thing. I respect them too. I think it's, it's one thing that's amazing about these movies is that there's moments that have nothing to do with the plot. There's moments that are just like railroading the plot forward. <laughs> but it's always amazing to me how they are at once super affable. They have like a loose feeling. You can jump into them at any time and it works. And I like that about them. And I think there's things to learn from these movies. I I will say like from personal experience, um, I've spent... I should do an intro later, but I I I spent like uh, the last few years <laughs> assistant editing on, you know, not just Hallmark and Lifetime movies, but um, a lot of that because, like many people, I live in Vancouver and work on these movies. But from the perspective of like, I am a new director and I'm learning about blocking and how to put a scene together. It's it's they're really they're interesting to learn from because like my job is literally taking all the shots from the scene and throwing them in a bin and just like looking at how they've chosen to put the scene together. And they they often make decisions that I would not do. But at the same time, they are like, it's, it's fascinating because the people who are hired to direct Hallmark movies are not newbies. Like it's not the kind of thing where they're like, Oh, this is a Hallmark movie. It's low stakes. Let's throw this to like some, you know, indie director who hasn't done a lot. And like, we won't, pay them very much but that this will be their break or whatever that is not what happens like the people who direct these are like industry veterans and they are they choose them because they are like trusted with the beast like the machine that is just like this schedule so i think like from the perspective of like the philosophy of those these directors it's a world of movies that is like pretty network controlled like it's like it's the studio is they're the ones that are controlling the film but the directors are just like <laughs> just talented in that they could like get these things done at all like it's crazy they need to be very right. i don't know mm-hmm. if if that makes sense and as a person who works on them like they have taught me a lot just in terms of like how to fucking throw a scene together real quick <laughs> like i don't know for better right. or for worse and and it's not always like learning and, and emulating what they do but it's just like I mean, sometimes it is that, you know, they don't do everything wrong, clearly. Because sometimes also, like you said, Bottle of Love, like there's some interesting kind of blocking in that movie a little bit sometimes. And you, oh, you can kind of see like, I don't there's, know. And there's genuinely there's interesting great, writing, actually. Yeah. There's a great visual gag, too, in Bottled with Love, where they're about to go oh. out. He's actually done his homework for this business meeting they're going to. And uh-huh. uh, in the last business meeting, she had to tell him, I'll take the lead. And he's trying to be a better uh, a better partner this time. So as they're stepping out of the building to head towards wherever they're going, he says, you take the lead. And so they step out and they're still in the wide, the oh. wide building as they walk out the doors. And she turns left to walk down the street. And he goes, we're, we're going straight, right? We're going, the car's over here. <laughs> the car's over here. And then you just here. see her turn around and walk to the car. And I could not decide whether that was intentional and blocking or if it was just like, Oh, they didn't know how the shot was going to end off, how how the blocking was supposed to finish. That felt like the ladder to me. And so the shot just died and then and he was still trying to go, "Oh, I thought I thought we were going straight." And they just kept it in editing, which in itself great choice, very intuitive and like smart mm-hmm. edit choice to keep that in. And that's that's just great. That's just that's just like a really nice that's not it's not easy to pull off visual gigs like that and to let a shot go from a medium into a wide like that and then play out into a gag that's elegant filmmaking um one thing i do want to point out that 
I know is made for demographic reasons, but that I do think is actually kind of refreshing about this subgenre of films is that in the vast, vast majority of Hollywood cinema and in most cinema, romantic parents usually have an age discrepancy where the man is a lot older. And in these films, usually there's something resembling age parity. And more, more often than not, the woman is the older pair of the pair. I think that is actually a really good thing about these films. Oh, and Bottled with Love, she is asking him anonymously, how old are you? And he goes like, oh, I'm 36. And she's like, yes, I'm 36. And it's like a big moment. <laughs> he's not like a creepy, like 55-year-old man, you know? Yeah, and both the actors are within like a year of each other in terms of age, right? And like, it's, I think that's genuinely a good thing. Well, not to mention, like, I don't know what the age is exact. Well, there's no... This isn't a science, but they say that like women over a certain age, which is not a high age, like women over 35, like, you know, have lost their place in Hollywood or whatever until they hit like their 60s or 70s and they can play a mom or well, I guess you could play a mom when you're 45. But my point is just like, you know, it's a it's an age range that kind of doesn't necessarily like they have trouble finding parts for them or that's a nice way of putting it. And so this is like an entire network that makes films exclusively about that age range. So it's, it's wild. I mean, you know, maybe not great if you don't act in a Hallmark movie, but it's, it's still kind of crazy. So in, in a way that's a positive. Thank you, Gloria, for walking us through some of how Hallmark movies get made, some of the quirks of their production, some of the style. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it was very fun. Um, spend a lot of time working on these. (laughs) (laughs) It's therapeutic to talk it out. Is there a way that you'd like people to be able to find you online, social media, website, anything? A couple of my films are online. Probably one of them will be online soon because it's kind of done the festival circuit. Um, You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Gloria. It's not particularly a film Twitter, but I'm there. Um, I also have my films on Twitter separately. I just made a film called Hecademia and Devin shot it. It's fun it's a short film it's not available online though so but you can find its twitter online it'll be um, at film festivals everywhere as soon as they're having film festivals oh again. it'll be <laughs> I online did sound on it at film festivals oh i'm sorry yeah, we'll did sound. i'm so sorry <laughs> this meeting is over thank you for joining today our associate producer is Paige smith if you liked the podcast hey please rate it review it that'll help other people find it If you want to come on the show, or if you've got an idea for a topic, or if you just want to ask a question about a topic we've announced that we might answer on the podcast, you can get in touch by email at filmformally at gmail.com, or you can find us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, at filmformally. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the unceded territory of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. See you next time! Will, do you want to do the button? Do you want to do kind of the the button on the Hallmark thing before I do this? Yeah. Well, my my big, my overall thematic button was saying like, hey, these movies have <laughs> stuff that's worth. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. That's the podcast. <laughs> we can't <laughs> see him. Is he dying? Turn <laughs> on your camera. <laughs> so, I can't. Did you try and eat banana bread while talking? Uh, no, that was oh, just no. pure saliva inhalation. Um <laughs>